Well, hello there. I'm Karen Sander. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly, a program for the over 50s, those uniquely wonderful baby boomers. My aim is to educate, motivate and inspire you to embrace the exciting journey of life for decades to come. So stay tuned to meet a variety of guests who will share their stories and passions to help us gain insight into the ways to live a happier, healthier life. Welcome everyone to the show today and I'm a very lucky woman. A few months ago I was introduced over the phone to Dr Joanna Nell by a friend Um, and she is a Sydney-based GP and an author and she is an advocate for positive ageing, something that's dear to my heart with those ageing fearlessly communities. And she has written three best-selling novels. So she's not only a GP, but she's really clever because I think anyone that can put a narrative together is really clever. It's on on my bucket list, not to do. (laughs) I've written a sort of a self-help book, but not, not a novel. Anyway, the first book is The Single Ladies of Jacaranda Retirement Village, her second book, The Last Voyage of Mrs Henry Parker, and The Great Escape from Woodlands Nursing Home. Actually, there's a third, a fourth, isn't there? Yes. Um, hi, thanks very much for having me in. I'm really excited to be here. And yes, it coincides beautifully with the release of my fourth book, which is The Tea Ladies of St Jude's Hospital, which came out a couple of weeks ago. Yes, yeah, so welcome, Joanna. I, I'm, it is really great to have you here. And you've been awarded, you know, awards and whatever. Can you tell us more about you? It's much better if you tell us. <laughs> um, yes, I have worn many hats. Uh, I really identify myself as a doctor. I've been um, been in many roles in the medical profession over the years. Um, my first love is general practice, but I've always loved to write and I've reinvented myself, I suppose, later in life um, and fulfilled a childhood dream to, to become a, a writer, um, which I did. My published my first book at the age of 52 so that's something I've come to later in life and I am now sort of combining the two the medical work and the writing I've just had to cut back a little bit on the medical side particularly during the pandemic for health reasons but I think I've found a beautiful um, balance in my life now including the both of those. How did 10 pin bowling lead you to writing? (laughs) Oh, this story. Yes, a, a painful introduction to the to the writing process. So I was a very busy working, full-time working mum, GP, and although I had, as I said, as a child, I'd always loved writing and always sort of harboured these dreams of becoming a, a writer one day. Look, life was just too chaotic. It was just too busy. There was no room in it for anything that wasn't really of immediate importance. Um, and the day that that changed was one of the get to know the other parent evenings at my children's new school. And they had specifically warned me not to embarrass them in any way, just as they were coming into teenage years. Um, so we went down to the local 10 pin bowling alley and I really should have just gone straight to the bar and, and met the other parents, but I decided to be a cool mum and join in having never 10 pin bowled in my life. 
Um, and I had a bit of a, an unfortunate accident. Nobody told me you're not supposed to put your foot on the, on the shiny bit. I did. <laughs> and for the first and only time in my life, I did the splits. And to cut a long story short, I pulled my hamstrings completely off my seat bone. Um, not only did I embarrass my kids by sort of ca- collapsing into a heap, I had to be carried off, put in an ambulance and, and taken away. But the silver lining to this sort of awful story really is that I was then forced to lie flat on my back for six weeks. And after reading every book I'd had on my to-be-read pile, I had a bit of sort of an epiphany and went through a bit of a mental bucket list of all the things. This felt like a bit of a pivot point in my life. I had finally had the, the, the time and space to think. And creative writing was something I really wanted to to do and I could do lying on my back because I googled creative writing courses and I discovered the Australian Writers' Centre, which actually um, was founded and and is run by um, Northern Beaches local um, Mm. Valerie Koo. And I started doing basic creative writing and went on from there. I absolutely fell in love with the process. And over that six weeks, I started writing short stories and began a novel. And that's really where it started. Interesting you mentioned Valerie Koo. I met her when I was doing Key Person of Influence. And she was teaching us about publicity and, and personal publicity, which is interesting. I didn't know she was on the Northern Beaches. Yeah, she's a, a very multi-talented woman. She's an artist as well, a successful businesswoman. She's, yeah, she, she's a really amazing woman. So I do know a lot of people that love to write and I do take my hat off to them, especially actually developing a plot and characters and I I look at it from the outside looking in and think that must be really hard. Is it difficult? Well, it is. Sometimes <laughs> it feels really difficult. But it's a skill like anything else that you have to learn. You know, if it took me six years to train to be a doctor. And in fact, from that 10-pin bowling moment through to the time I published my first book was six years. And it's something I had to learn to do. Um, it, it may be something that you feel you have a natural affinity with, or, um, you know, some people love to sing or a musical or love to, to do a particular sport. This was something I'd always sort of craved to do. Um, but it's really like walking onto the flight deck of a 747 saying, oh, this is something I've always wanted to do. It can't be that difficult. You have to learn the craft. So you have to learn the basics. And I think you gain a lot of that through intuition from having read a lot of books. That's why I think it's essential for anybody who wants to write to have to read. So obviously over my lifetime, being a great and voracious reader, I would have probably imbibed a lot of that naturally. But I, you know, you have to learn that there is a structure to a story. There has to be a conflict. So you have to, I often come up with the characters first because I think my, my stories tend to be character driven. And often these characters, um, just by their nature, will, um, will be facing a conflict or often a, a time of change in their life. So uh, it's not just about putting a, a character in their comfort zone. It's often doing something really cruel to them. It's putting them, just thinking, what is the worst thing that could happen to this person? You know, what are their worst fear? Um, you know, taking them completely outside their comfort zone and then seeing what happens and seeing the change within that character. And so ideas, I think people are are often fascinated where the ideas come from, the inspiration come from. And and I don't think anyone can really answer that. There's a lot of theories about creativity. And Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote 
Eat, Pray, Love and, and Big Magic, which I think is one of the best books on creativity. I've just finished Big oh. Magic, yes. <laughs> so you'll, you'll be familiar with her, you know, the way she says it's this sort of a, a, a magic about it, really, that these ideas somehow are floating around in the ether looking for a sort of human body, somebody who's receptive at that moment, who's really got time in their schedule and who's prepared to sort of take this on board. And if it's not you at that time, it'll float off and find another person. And and it sounds a little bit woo-woo, but I cannot think of another way, you know, to, to, to describe that's what it is. And I think it's about having powers of observation. She said, you know, the ideas around are around you. And I think my brain, like like a writer's brains are like toddlers, really. They're like toddlers in a supermarket. They just want to go, oh, what's that? Can I have that? Oh, why is that lady crying? Why is that man wearing pajamas at the bus stop? You know, they just are constantly looking and noticing and observing things and just sort of running with it, really, running with that idea and seeing it where it takes you. So you sort of have a heightened awareness of what's happening around you. Is that how you describe it? I think that's right. I mean, Elizabeth Gilbert says, you know, it's just about turning your head just a fraction and noticing something. But this is something really that, um, you know, it started when I was a child. I was a bit of a loner. I was a very shy child. And I was suppose um, a lot of writers are isolated during their childhood years, either geographically or socially. And I was socially isolated. I became a bit of a watcher, a people watcher and an observer. And this really went through into my medical training because doctors have to be observers. You know, we have to pick up on nonverbal clues. We have to look for physical signs um, in order to make the diagnosis and pick up on body language. And I think this is just a heightened sense of, of what what I do. In fact, Somerset Maughan, who was also a, a doctor and a, a writer, one of my favourite writers, he said, I have small powers of imagination and great powers of observation. And I think that sort of sums it up for me. I, I, going back to Elizabeth Gilbert, how she talked about the story in the Amazon yes. and, and how she met this woman, I can't Anne remember. Patchett, who, yes. Anne Patchett. Anne <laughs> Patchett. She said, oh, what are you going to write? And Anne Patchett said, oh, there's this story in the Amazon. And Elizabeth Gilbert's going, but that was like she's word for word telling me what I was going to write and haven't got to. Yeah, and that that story she tells really sort of sends tingles down my my spine, you know, how this idea, she wasn't ready to write this book, um, but she'd met this woman and she'd, you know, kissed her at a, a, a conference in a, in a friendly way and she felt at that point that the, the idea had just jumped into Anne Patchett and Anne Patchett wrote almost word for word the, the book that she had in her mind. So. It's incredible, it isn't is. it? And, yeah. and I think, you know, it, it says to me something else about, especially when you get in tune with yourself and, and you know, observing and whatever, but for me it's about listening and listening for things around and I pick up things just by listening and the coincidences that happen in my life personally, things that just I stumble across and I go, Mm. where did that come from? Mm. So I I do relate to everything that you're saying. And I also love that you went to Dr. Google, you know, when you were looking at writing and starting to write, that... Google is so many people's best friends these days. It can be your worst enemy. Mm. You know, if you, you know, as a doctor, you would know a lot of people probably go out there and self-diagnose, and that's pretty dangerous sometimes. But I was talking to someone the other day that said, oh, I learned how to tie um, 
a, a mattress on my roof by by watching Dr. Google. <laughs> you, know, you know, like you can find out anything on Google. It can be a great distraction as well, particularly when you're trying to concentrate on something and the, um, the, the old toddler goes off and wants to look up there or something. But you should never look at the search history of a writer either. There's some fairly... Uh, you know, bizarre and, and grim things that, that, that doctors have to look at. I'm sorry, uh, writers have to look at. Uh, and you never look at a, a search history of someone that's looking for podcast guests either because <laughs> I'm like the the stalker. That <laughs> is, and all my guests get stalked before they come on my program because I need to find out a lot about them. You've chosen Daydream Believers by the Monkeys. Now, the Monkeys were big in my early years of life. Why have you chosen this song today? Apart from the fact that it's just a joyous song, I, I love it. It's actually a tribute to my late mentor, Valerie Parve, who, who died earlier this year in, in April. And Valerie was a, an incredibly prolific writer and an academic. In fact, she's probably the most famous um, author that people won't have heard of. She's published over 30 million books. She writes in the romance genre. And she picked my unpublished manuscript um, for the winner of the Valerie Parve Award in 2017. And her mentorship and, and wisdom and, and the confidence that she put in me gave me the courage to start pitching this um, to agents and publishers. So... Um, Valerie, apart from being a wonderful, generous, warm human being, was also the biggest fan of the monkeys. And at 70 years old, even the mention of Mickey Dolenz could um, have her quivering at the knees. So this one is for you, Valerie. <laughs> you are listening to Radio Northern Beaches 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. I'm in the studio today with a Dr. Joanna Nell, who is not only a GP, but she's a very, very talented author. Joanna, how does your career as a doctor influence you in your writing? Um, I think it has a, an enormous influence, and, and I would say that you know, being a doctor has made me a, a better writer, but also conversely, I think being a writer has made me a, a better doctor as well. And it might seem an unusual thing for a doctor to be um, a writer or an author, but it's not. I, I am one of a, um, a great number of very famous um, doctors who've also written. People may not realise um, that Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote Sherlock Holmes, um, Carla Hosseini, The Kite Runner... Um, Somerset Maughan, um, Anton Chekhov. So all these now, I'm not putting myself on the same level as these, they are these great names, but they, they are, they were all writers. And when I've looked at this, looked into it and, and wondered what it is that draws doctors to writing or is it the other way around? Um, often they have a sense of a social injustice that they perhaps want to, um, subconsciously correct. So if you look at Anton Chekhov, he, worked in the 
Russian penal colonies and wrote extensively about that. With Somerset Maugham, it was the slums of London. And another writer that I greatly admired, A.J. Cronin, who wrote um, Dr. Findlay's case book and uh, um, The Citadel, he worked in a small Welsh mining village and observed the effects of, you know, miners' lung, um, the coal dust on the lung. And this was in the days uh, before the National Health Service. So a lot of these people were quite poor, the miners, and couldn't afford medical care. And a lot of the observations he made in the book, his book, The Citadel, um, went on to inform um, the authorities in, in the UK and w- created the birth of the, the NHS, really. So I'm not dealing with uh, with issues like that, but in my case it was uh, perhaps you know, the, working in aged care at the time and becoming aware of, of, of ageism. But um, a lot of medicine is really an art as well as a, a science and I think it's um, doctors are a, a fairly creative bunch actually a lot of them are very talented musicians not me I can't sing and I can't play an <laughs> instrument um, and for for them I think it, it can be a sort of a therapy as well doctors are not very good at looking after each other necessarily or looking after their mental health or their mental well-being I think there's a sort of false stoicism that comes with that that a doctor's not meant to um, um, you know, that, that we're meant to be able to cope with anything, that we have to be the strong ones. And that's not always the case because it can be a very demanding job, both you know, physically, mentally, psychologically. And I think for me, it started as a little bit of um, therapy as well. I found it was really um, a way of, of unwinding and dealing with a lot of the, um, the unresolved sort of issues and feelings that, that I had inside or could just put them down on the paper. Um, so I think doctors often use that as, as therapy, but I think it comes back to that idea of observation. So a lot of the things that the doctor skills that doctors use, um, that observation, interesting people, obviously, um, hearing stories all day, uh, really doing a deep dive into people's lives. And I always want to reassure my patients, if any of them are listening, that none of the things that I hear in the con- consulting room ever make their way onto the page. People might think they recognise a character or a characteristic. This is because human characteristics are, are general. You know, the characters will be a montage of everybody I've met in my life of people. I know people I imagine, um, my husband more, more often than not, he's always saying, is this me? Is this me? <laughs> they will be elements. So I'll take away elements but, you know, through the Hippocratic Oath, I couldn't possibly um, reveal anything that happens within the consultation room. But it, it's being immersed in stories and the narrative of the case history that I think draws a lot of doctors to, to writing. So when you're developing a character, and I'm talking outside your office and outside the hat of the GP, where do you like to go to create to think about the characters to give them a life sometimes they appear sort of fully formed Um, I don't like to base them on real people because it constrains the character development too much if I have to think would this person do that would they not do that is that their characteristic so I like to start with a mental image I like to sort of be able to see them in my Mm. um, mind and my first, a few of uh, my books have been inspired by works of art. So in the case of the Single Ladies of Jacaranda Retirement Village, 
The character in this, um, Peggy Smart, was inspired by a, a sculpture by a Northern Beaches artist, M Michelle Petrie, who'd done a beautiful ceramic sculpture of um, a lady called, I think it was called Bill Golabetti, who was in her swimsuit and she was about to go for a swim. And this, as the moment I saw that, I knew that that character was going to end up um, as a character in my book. I didn't know what they were going to be like. And, of course, they just evolved. Um, it's like getting to know a new friend. You know, I have to, you have to get to know them over a few <laughs> meetings. And then one night, you know, you'll have too much wine and all the secrets will tumble out of the, the cupboard. And this is where the real fun begins. This is, um, this is where you really get to know someone. Um, and in the case of the other two books, they've also been works of art. So in the... Last Voyage of Mrs. Henry Parker, that was a work of art um, based on the beautiful Eileen Kramer, who's a dancer and choreographer. I think she's now 106, but there was an Archibald finalist portrait of her, and it's called The Inner Stillness of Eileen Kramer by Andrew Lloyd Greensmith, who's actually a doctor here. I think he's a, a neurosurgeon, and he, mm. he's also a beautiful painter. And there was a woman there with her eyes closed, and she was she was looking as if she was really trying to make sense of the outside world, but really what made sense to her was behind her eyes. And it was... In this book, there's a woman who's living with memory impairment. And this was my, it was my visual cue. I'm not meaning to imply that Eileen Kramer has any, any memory impairment. She's a, an amazing woman. Um, and uh, the, another book by another Archibald finalist as well. So sometimes there's just this cue, um, a work of art or a visual cue. And then I just have to run with it. I have to get to know them. I have to start to put them on the page put them in a situation that they will find very uncomfortable and then get them to reveal themselves. So why the appeal of older characters? I don't know. Look, I've, I've been asked this a lot and I still don't have a very concise answer. Um, I think from the publisher's point of view, it would be that they were looking for somebody to write books about older characters. But I'd started this way before I ever realised that there was a gap in the market and that this was something that publishers realised that this sector of, of readers, of the audience, um, um, hadn't been catered to, to before. I grew up with a very close relationship to my grandparents. My mother was, was quite unwell having my little brother and was um, intensive care back in 1970 for quite a while. And I was brought up by my grandparents for a little while. Um, and she being a younger mother, we spent a lot of time with her parents. And as I said, I was an observer. I was a shy child. I just used to watch people. And my grandparents were fantastic adverts for positive ageing. My uh, grandmother loved fashion and she would always be making herself. She was a seamstress. She'd be making herself wonderful outfits. She was wearing high heels in her wheelchair. Um, <laughs> and they were off to Spain every year on holiday. They went to the same hotel, the Don Juan Hotel, which was probably like the Spanish equivalent of Faulty Towers, I think. Um, and I just loved them. I adored them. And I watched them get older because they were probably in their 50s when, when I you know, was born. And, and I watched them get older and I became fascinated by how they struggled to keep up their, their lifestyle. And when I got to medical school, I found that I gravitated towards older patients. They were much more much more patient you know when you're fumbling around as a medical student you can't tell one end of the stethoscope from another and they go don't worry take your time and although they had a longer list of uh, of complaints you know of, of medical conditions and a long list of, of drugs 
they were I found their their cases much more interesting. I found that they their stories were so much better. Um and there was just something about they were very sort of stoical and witty and self-deprecating and I just I just loved these patients. Um, and I suppose that led me and drew me to um, specialise in uh, well general practice, but also you know with an interest in aged care. Mm. And when I started writing, um, it was not a conscious thing, but when I look back at the short stories I first wrote, there are you know exercises or, or, or short stories that were entered for competitions. They nearly all had an older protagonist. Um, and it was just something interesting. I think there was just more scope. There was a richness to to this life, a richness of backstory, um, of their relationships, and of them sort of reflecting and looking on, on their lives, which is a gift for a, a writer. Really, I would just have been bored writing about twenty year olds who <laughs> haven't experienced life at all. So it was an accidental thing. I fell into it, and just at a time when the zeitgeist really was changing. And that, you know, society and, and particularly publishing and the media were looking for older role models. And what do people get wrong about ageing? You know, what's perception-wise? I think just about everything, really. I think that we are a, a youth-obsessed society. You only have to look at the representations of older people in the media, so particularly social media. You know, the way that um, TV presenters and newsreaders disappear suddenly when they get to a certain age. I think that there are certainly exceptions and we're certainly changing. But I think that we don't generally like to to think about aging too much nobody likes to be confronted by their own mortality or, or the upcoming or what's ahead of them so we tend to like to sort of shove it to the side and as a result um, we tend to have rather sort of patronizing I think um, attitudes we have certain stereotypes that we hold about about aging um, and there's this particularly I wrote a, a blog post um, the 10 common myths about um, aging it's on my website but uh, I could have written you know 100 myths of uh, uh, about aging but I think the common one is particularly that the aging population is a burden to society mm. really you know they would they would have you know scaremongers would have us believe that society is about to collapse under the strain of a rapidly aging population but the majority um, of, of older people are still living really healthy productive lives and, and actively engaged in society um, you know, many people are still still working. I mean, you wouldn't say that the Queen or David Attenborough or Kofi Annan or, or Nelson Mandela were ever a burden on society. No, you know, definitely. who are still you know contributing. So I think it's about valuing um, older people as we age, valuing ourselves as well, and not internalising those messages that we are a burden on society and that that old age is necessarily a time when we put up our feet, you know, get our slippers out and, and give up on life. And I think that those are, um, th those are some of the stereotypes we have to challenge. Glenn Campbell. Is there a favourite song of Glenn Campbell's? The one that I've chosen, which at our line mine, is probably my favourite. I grew up um, on a healthy diet of country music. My parents were country music fans, and so um, Glenn Campbell, Johnny Cash, these were sort of figures that were, were, were um, very prominent in, in my childhood. Um, he, he died um, about three years ago, I think, from, from Alzheimer's disease. And the reason I've chosen this song is it's 30 years since I finished medical school and qualified as a doctor, and I've been doing a lot of reflecting this year about the highs and lows of my career, of which there have been many. There have been times when you know I've been in tears at 
you know, tears of, of sadness because I've had to break bad news or I've shared in somebody's sadness or pain or I've lost a, a patient that I've been very fond of. Tears of frustration um, that the system doesn't help me to, to support patients and advocate for them and do what I want for. And, and tears sometimes of just sheer exhaustion. But there have been enormous highs. Um, times that have been just absolutely wonderful for, for me nothing beats the moment when you deliver a baby and this tongue takes me back to an operating theater in about 1994 and it was about 3 30 in the morning and a lady had been laboring for hours and hours and hours and unfortunately it ended up meaning she needed a cesarean section and as we were delivering the baby, I was the assistant surgeon, as we were delivering the baby, a very healthy baby, to very happy parents, um, it seemed as though the rest of the world was asleep. And somebody said, turn on the radio. And this song was playing. Oh, my gosh. And we all started to sing along. And it just, for me, every time I hear this, I just think about the privilege that I've had in my career um, as a doctor. So Wichita Lineman by Glenn Campbell. Welcome back to 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly with Karen. Please go to Facebook and like the page Aging Fearlessly. I'm in the studio today with Dr. Joanna Nell. We're having a wonderful chat about being an author as well as being a GP and the inspiration, where it comes from when she's writing a book, talking about characters. And she's actually written four really great books. But Joanna, you've published two books during the pandemic. How's that been? Well, it's not ideal, but I think <laughs> I think there's a lot of people who've had a lot worse to, to deal with than, than the challenges of, of that. Um, Look, publishing a book during lockdown, during a pandemic, is not great because a lot of um, the, the, the best part of the job, if you like, is going out and meeting booksellers. It's doing author events where I can meet readers in person. I can answer their questions. I can interact. We can have a chat about the books, whether they like them, what they want to talk about, and I can sign their books. And of course, I can't do that in, in reality during the pandemic. It's, it's starting to obviously open up a little bit now, but a lot of events got cancelled. And I really do feel sorry for particularly debut authors who, mm. who'd released their first book during um, the pandemic. They haven't had the chance to already go out and, and sort of establish um, that relationship with booksellers and, and, and readers. So, but I think a lot of writers have become quite inventive. We've and had to use things like social media and live streaming. So I um, live streamed my launch a couple of weeks ago, which was for, for the two ladies of St. Jude's Hospital, which was... Um, was entertaining um you know what could have gone wrong did go wrong um, we had a sort of it had to be obviously in a, an open public space and uh you know a helicopter tried to land behind us and there was a very aggressive bird that that kept trying to swoop us and a delivery van was near nearby but you know i think that was wonderful because the advantage of that rather than a handful of people who were invited to a, a bookshop for a you know canapé and a glass of champagne and, and a speech 
there were people from all over the world. And I think even my, uh, you know, technically challenged parents were able to live stream. Um, people from all over Australia, in fact, all over the world were able to hop on that event on Facebook and, and Instagram and ask questions. And I just, I love that interaction. So we've been doing a lot, um, a lot of interviews online, a lot of podcasts and things. I think it's just a case of getting inventive. So we can't change the, the pandemic. The biggest challenge for me, and I think a lot of creative people have found this as well, that the living um, in a pandemic has led to a lot of anxiety, a constant state of fear, particularly working on the front line during that time. I found it sort of quite challenging, exhausting. It's to find the creative energy um, at that time when you know when you're not sleeping, when you're worrying consistently mm. about what's going to happen. Um, you know whether you're going to stay safe, whether you're going to keep your family and loved ones safe. Um, and that was the challenge. So writing this latest book, which was written, uh, you know, just as the pandemic started, that was the real challenge. It, it really did feel like it took a lot more mental energy, a lot more rewrites than normal. But we got there in the end. The Tea Ladies of St Jude's Hospital. Tell us about this book. Um, this obviously is set in a hospital, a fictional hospital called St Jude's Hospital. St Jude, by the way, is the patron saint of lost causes. So I think this, <laughs> this is sort of a little ironic, um, you know, um, wink to, to that. And the story was inspired by a trip I made to my old teaching hospital, the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford, a place I haven't been to for 30 years. And it was an unscheduled visit. And this was um, Christmas 2019. Remember that just before the world changed, yeah, changed. Um, and we were over visiting family in, in in England. And on New Year's Eve, my son, who is twenty one, um, he'd been complaining his elbow had been sore over Christmas. And like the poor child of, of any sort of medical person will know that they really get very little uh, attention less. Their poor, arms actually hanging off. Poor darling. So poor darling showed me his arm, and really it was clear that we did need to get him some antibiotics. It was it was infected, and being New Year, it was New Year's Eve. Them couldn't get in to see a doctor, and I can't prescribe for him over there. So we ended up at the John Radcliffe Hospital, and. The good, you know, the good news is that he got sorted out. But while we were waiting for the prescription, we walked past the old tea shop. It's called the League of Friends, and it hadn't changed at all in thirty years, not My since nineteen ninety one. In fact, I think probably still the same cakes and, and, and things. <laughs> and on the way out of the hospital, there was a new chain of coffee shops and ca a cafe. There was a, a big Costa Coffee, big coffee, I'll call them, and a, and a fast food chain had opened up in the new part of the hospital. And the lines for the coffees and snacks were out of the door. And so I really worried about what was going to happen to the League of Friends, which raises an awful lot of money for good causes, for vital equipment and you know, for really for things that enhance the experience for patients, visitors and staff alike. And I thought that looking at these volunteers, as they're all volunteer run, that the volunteers would not take kindly to the new coffee shop opening up and stealing their business, and they definitely wouldn't go without a fight. So in this case, this book was not inspired by a work of art. It was inspired by uh, an infected elbow, and it, the story came almost fully formed for me. So this really is the premise for the book. Um, three volunteers, three very different women. Um, Hilary, who's the stalwart, she's been there for donkey's years, 
um, Joy, who's the latest recruit or the intern, who um, is a retiree who tends to be late every day, but is a you know very fond of her colourful accessories and adds certainly adds a pop of colour. And uh, Chloe, who's a teenager, she's volunteering there for her Duke of Edinburgh award. She's the daughter of two very successful surgeons, and is expected to go on to medical school um, and follow in her brother's footsteps. But um, the problem is that Chloe's not great with blood, and uh, uh, so each of the women. They come together to to try and save the cafe when it's threatened with closure. Um, But in doing so, they develop really an unlikely friendship and discover that each of them is harbouring a bit of a secret about themselves, uh, something that they're not sharing with the rest of of the group. And I love it, Chris, on the back you have a little summary about the characters. And is this a gingham tablecloth? Is that (laughs) uh, on the cover? Is that what it's meant to be? It is, yes. Look, the, the... um, I have very little input into the design, the cover design of, of the books. This one um, is particularly eye-catching because it is, it's a beautiful sort of pinky, peachy, check gingham tablecloth on, on the front um, and it really does stand out on the shelf. So that's um, thanks to my publisher. I really do love the cover. It's, um, yeah, I you know, that you, I remember the gingham tablecloth so well and... It it just looks great in the spotted teapot and the cup. And, and I'd like to drink out of a cup like that because when you drink a cup of tea, there's nothing like drinking it out of a cup with a very thin rim and that the tea isn't cold by the time it gets to the bottom, which it is usually when you drink from a mug. That's right. No, there's something about China and, um, you know, it's not really giving away much of the plot, but the... The cafeteria at St Jude's undergoes a little bit of a makeover, shall we say, in order to try and compete with the new um, competitor. Um, And they bring out a lot of old vintage uh, or or stored teacups in China. Um, And a lot of them are mismatched. And I think that's beautiful. There's this lovely trend, isn't there, to use old things. I am a firm believer in that you shouldn't keep things for best, you know, that you shouldn't keep clothes for the best you should burn your beautiful scented candles every day and you should drink out of your best china every day you're actually talking to someone i know <laughs> through the swim where i swim and she always said oh it's it's just for best <laughs> i'm gonna to have to remind her she needs to listen to this interview the proclaimers oh my god i love the proclaimers do you know it takes me back to a time in the 1990s when I was working on film sets and I was on a particular film um, with Brian Brown in South Australia and the proclaimers were so big then. So I'm going to be, and it's 500 miles, tell me more. (laughs) I love the proclaimers too. And my son um, has been studying over in, in Scotland for the last three years, so I've been missing him dreadfully. And the times I've been over to visit him, this has always been playing in wherever you go into a pub in Glasgow this will be playing in the background but the reason I've chosen this I could have chosen one of two songs I could have chosen Staying Alive but I chose this instead there is a scene in the book where um, in which the tea ladies the three of them have to do a compulsory CPR course for all the hospital staff now people will be familiar with these courses probably and you know because I like to bring in an element of humour into my books this is a little bit of light relief this scene because clearly 
there, there are going to be some shenanigans in the, the CPR scene. Um, but people who've, who learn, have learned to do chest compressions and CPR will know that there's a rhythm that you have to keep up, 100 compressions, and um, staying alive is the right beat. But this also, this song, um, 500 Miles, is also the right beat. And the Scottish government recently um, started a campaign to save a life for Scotland. And they had a TV celebrity who was demonstrating chest compressions with this going on in the background. So all you have to do is to, um, I would walk 500 miles, take away that and replace with, I would press 500 times and you've got CPR. So what I wanted to do really is to encourage people, if they haven't, if their CPR skills, first aid skills aren't up to scratch, there are so many courses you can do through St John's Ambulance, the Surf Life Saving or you know, private um, companies to try to make sure that um, you know we look after people who have a heart attack, have a cardiac arrest in the community. So if you do come across somebody, think 500 miles and the Proclaimers. 500 miles and the Proclaimers. I love it. This is going to take me on a completely other journey to the one you're talking about, but I'm going to enjoy <laughs> every second of it. Welcome back. You're listening to 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. To find out more, go to the website rnb.org.au. Well, I'm with Dr Joanna Nels, who is not only a GP, a doctor, she is also an author and a very talented one. And we just listened to the proclaimers and the person that was laying on the floor then needing CPR is quite fine now. They're up and they're <laughs> running around because we've done CPR. As If you listen to the beginning of it, it's a great song to sort of work on the beat for mm. the CPR. So, yep, they're okay. They're absolutely fine. Um Joanna, I'm loving talking to you today. And look, two of your books, Jacaranda Retirement Village and The Woodlands Nursing Home, sometimes, you know, people, I was talking to a woman the other day, she's 94, and she's absolutely petrified of going into a nursing home. And, you know, people have this perception that it's all bad, and it's all downhill. And, you know, it's all dark. And, uh, Tell us, you know, about your books and the uplifting side to nursing homes and retirement villages and the humour that you write in your books. Yeah, look at that. <clears throat> that word uplifting is something I suppose I always have at the back of my mind. Now, nobody wants to be told a fairy story, isn't it? A fairy tale. Nobody wants to be told everything is lovely and it's, you know, all, all birds and butterflies and whatever, because that's not life. You know, I don't want to sugarcoat. I do write about ageing and, and with ageing comes um, infirmity and, and, and frailty and, and, and ultimately, you know, we're all, all go, obviously going to die. But to make that more palatable you know I want to tell those stories I want to tell stories about you know retirement villages um, nursing homes because they are part of life they're a very important part of life and it's a transition stage that a lot of us in fact most of us will, will go through and I do meet a lot of people who are terrified of that transition of what may lie ahead but I want to I wanted to particularly the nursing home book um the Great Escape from Woodlands Nursing Home. I'll have to qualify that the escape bit, it's not an escape manual. It's not a how-to. 
um, you know, and there are different forms of escape. There's physical escape and there's sort of an existential escape. I won't sort of spoil, spoil too much, but... Um, I wanted to tell these stories that are behind closed doors to show that there is life and love and laughter in in places. Yes, there are um, yeah, there are things that are that are not so palatable uh, about life in um, in in aged care, but I wanted to take the reader on a journey, um, seeing it through the eyes of a couple of characters who are new. They've sort of had it forced on them in a little way. And they're not, you know, both of them say, well, I'm not staying. I'm, I'm, I'll be going home soon. And um, and it's about, for, about how they form, you know, forge friendships, both with the staff and with, with each other and the other residents. Um, and about seeing it through their their eyes, um, and they have fun, and they they get up to some mischief, and and in ultimately, I want you know I want um, I want there not to be necessarily a happy ending because that sort of neatly ties everything up in a bow because life isn't like that, so it's more of a hopeful ending. There's more optimism, I suppose. It's a happy ever after for now, and this sort of genre of um, the books are often called sort of heartwarming, um, you know, heart and humour. Um, and it's actually, my publisher told me this is a genre called uplit. I didn't realise I was writing mm. uplit at the time. So people will be familiar with um, books like um, Eleanor Oliphant is completely uh, fine and, and other books that are, have odd characters, of, you know, based on communities coming together. They're sort of underdog stories, quirky characters, um, and these are the stories I like to, to tell. And yes, I take you to some dark places. I go, um, you know, I take the reader on a, a, a journey through sort of pain and loss and grief and all those things. But in the end, I, when you come away, I hope that you'll feel better because ultimately they're almost my prescription, if you like, you know, and, and that's why I put a lot of, or I try to put a bit of humour, not, not in a forced sense, but um, humour's a great tension reliever. It's a great pain reliever, actually. Yeah. It releases all these wonderful chemicals in the bodies, the endorphins, serotonins, um, you know, all the chemicals, the feel-good chemicals, the, the natural pain-killing chemicals. Um, so it's my prescription, if you like. There we go. I want you to feel better at the end of this. I hear what you're saying, and I'm taking you and going on this journey with you, but I want you to feel better at the end. And what's next for Dr. Joanna Nils and Joanna Nils, the author? Well, I am working in, on another book at the moment. Um, mm. It's in the early stages, so I'm always a little bit reticent about talking things in Is the it a early stage. Secret. It's not really a secret, <laughs> um, but I'm looking at um, I'm looking at the retirement um, about sort of I suppose retirement is just my immediate future and about how I would or a doctor who has. Um, define themselves by their career will cope with um, with retirement and yeah uh, so that's my next book and I would love to keep writing uh, I, I think I'd love to keep writing that's the real dream come true it's not having a book published it's continuing to to write even if nobody read the books I would love to keep writing until I run out of ideas so always have more ideas than there are books so um, yeah, I would just love to keep doing what I'm doing and, and combining the both. And your books are in bookshops, aren't they? They are. They're, they're widely available in bookshops. So if you have a, an independent local bookshop, please support your local bookseller. But they're also in places like Kmart and, and Big W and through Booktopia. 
Um, and they're also available um, in ebook and audiobook um, through um, online and Apple Books. Well, I am so thrilled you have been into the studio with me today because it's so much nicer to meet you in person and look into your eyes and talk to you as a real person instead of someone over Zoom. It's always a bit harder over Zoom. I wish you all the best because I know that what you're doing is making a difference in lives and um, maybe you can come back and talk to us again when your next book is published. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me in the studio. It's absolutely lovely to to chat, Karen, and and to meet you as well. Thank you for having me. Well, you are more than welcome. So, Dr. Joanna Nels, thank you very much. And to author Joanna Nels, two hats, amazing woman. Take the time. Pick up one of her books and read it. And then if you like it, pick up the rest. So cheers for now. This is Karen Sander from Aging Fearlessly. I've absolutely loved today. I hope you have too. And until next time. So this is it for today's program. It's time to say cheerio to the wonderful Northern Beaches community. Join me next week for another episode of Aging Fearlessly. And now for a song written by Nick Howard, especially for the listeners. This is Karen Sander. Have a fantastic week. And remember, ageing is inevitable and growing old is a choice. The sun is shining bright outside. There's a sparkle in your eye. It's not all nine to five. It's a wonderful life. Let's go and climb mountains high. Swim across oceans wide. Live out our dreams just you and me. Let your heart be alive. There's no time to waste. Gotta go get the This treasure that you've got to find, baby, don't be shy. Let's go and take that ride. Taste the sweet and the spice, everything nice. Let your heart be alive, baby, just let your heart come alive, honey. Let your heart be alive.